G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today we'll continue our series on the Eureka Rebellion. This episode we recall that the miners at Ballarat have just declared their intention to fight for their rights. They have laid out their charter, an expanded set of rights which now go beyond the early calls for a fairer gold licensing system to demand more reasonable treatment and voting and land rights. After a number of local incidents, which only served to shine a light on the corruption and contempt of the goldfield authorities, and to illustrate the lack of interest from the government in addressing these grievances, the miners now gave up on petitioning and pleading, and instead swore allegiance to one another and to defend themselves with force if necessary. So today, we'll look at the creation of the Eureka Stockade, the people who were leaders of the miners there, and the response by the authorities to their defiant stand. Though there were tragic consequences ahead, it would afterwards be recognised as a turning point in relations between the diggers and working class of the colony and the existing ruling classes controlling the structures of government. Now, listening to the previous episode, I note that all the way through, I was pronouncing Peter Lawler's name as Laylaw, despite my making a note to myself to use the pronunciation advised by the Australian Dictionary of Biography, Lawler. I'll try to do that correctly from now on. If you are new to the Australian Histories podcast and interested in the Eureka story, I would suggest you first listen to episode 29, Eureka Part 1, Gold, which gives you a brief background to the gold rushes starting in Australia and the way that the authorities tried to manage that rush. And then 30 and 31, which gives you a taste of the deterioration of relations on the Ballarat goldfield leading up to this episode. Okay, so we'll get started. In previous episodes, we'd spoken about what the diggers had to put up with at Ballarat, the many meetings being held to voice their objections, and the change of mood of the miners now ready to physically resist and confront the authorities. It's fair to say there'd been a lot of meetings, a lot of stumps being stood on, a lot of oath swearing and hurrahing going on. Some sources say this thing or that speech took place up on Bakery Hill. Others suggest that thing or this speech occurred down on the Eureka lead. It can all be a bit confusing, but all we really need to know is by the 30th of November, the miners had burned their licences and sworn beneath the Southern Cross flag to defend each other under the leadership of Lawler. And they were preparing to stand their ground on the Eureka lead and to organise themselves to face the British military if it came to that. Carboni recorded the end of the pivotal meeting on the 30th this way, quote, very soon after this, all the diggers fell in, two abreast and marched to the Eureka. Captain Ross of Toronto was our standard bearer. He hoisted down the Southern Cross from its flagstaff and headed the march. And all of us marched in order to the Eureka. I assert as an eyewitness that we were within 1,000 in rank, with all sorts of arms, down to the pick and shovel. We turned by the Catholic Church and went across the gully. Of this I have a perfect recollection. When the Southern Cross reached the road leading to the Eureka, on the opposite hill, the file of two abreast crossing the gully extended backwards up the hill where the Catholic Church stands. We reached the hill where was my tent. How little did we know that some of the best among us had reached the place of their grave. Lawler gave proper orders to defend ourselves among the holes, 
in case the hunt should be attempted in our quarters. But the red tape was by far too cunning this time. Redcoats, traps and troopers had retired to the Ballarat camp and wanted to spell. We determined, however, to put an end to their accursed licence hunting, mock riot act chopping, vandemonian shooting down our mates in the gravel pits, unquote. Let's look again at why it seemed armed resistance was now the only way to drive their cause forward. By not responding to the original and most persistent grievance of all, the licensing arrangements, the government had now promoted the causes of the more radical on the goldfields to become mainstream. Quoting from a contemporary article in the Ballarat Times, the authorities had to recognise that they were dealing with men who were fully aware of their rights as citizens, men furthermore who knew that they had the power to enforce those rights, preferably legally and peacefully, but, if not, by other means. It was time for Hotham and all those whom he led to recognise that three paramount issues remained unresolved. The land, the licence system and the lack of digger representation, unquote. The proprietor of the Adelphi Theatre there, Mrs Sarah Hanmer, was a staunch supporter of the diggers' causes, both financially and practically, and she had arranged benefit concerts and fundraisers to assist. Her large theatre building was to be the venue of an upcoming Ballarat Reform League meeting, planned for Sunday, December 3rd, though of course that meeting would never occur. The League and the so-called rebellion would be crushed on that very morning. We noted previously that the attitude of the Gold Commissioners and their underlings was to treat the diggers as if they were second-class citizens, criminals and deserving no respect, a hangover perhaps of the attitudes of the early convict state police and troopers who control and hold power over lowly convicts. And though the diggers were free men, albeit a few ex-convicts, but with many more recent free arrivals, there was perhaps still the shadow of a penal colony mentality here, though, amongst the authorities. This is an unhealthy dynamic to have between a government and its people. In the ten years between 1851 and 1861, Victoria's population grew sevenfold, from around 77,000 to 540,000. Now numbers differ a little in different sources, but it's always of this magnitude, so it's quite a stunning growth trajectory. And free arrivals now far outnumbered any old ex-convict stock. Many new incomers, including the Americans and the Europeans, arrived early in those first few years of the rush, and it is true that some did encourage the British in reassessing their old relationships and responsibilities to the colonial authorities. So there was an element of the foreigners influencing sentiment on the goldfields, perhaps promoting the memory of the American Revolution. Taxation without representation is tyranny. Or even the French Revolution to some extent, with its call for liberty, equality, fraternity. Pretty much exactly what was being sworn to and demanded by the diggers under the Southern Cross at those most recent meetings. And I can see why the ruling classes were nervous. The diggers could be seen as the enemy of the squatter, threatening their wealth and power should the status quo change. It's just so frustrating to note that Hotham and his cohort could not envisage any other approach to dealing with this growing disquiet other than a military confrontation. It seems a lesson rarely learned, and we are forced to live with consequences again and again throughout history. Going back to the evening of November 28th, the Gold Commissioners were partying with the American ambassador at Red Hill to help them celebrate their Thanksgiving Day. 
The ambassador reassured the commissioner that the Americans would keep right out of this developing uprising. This was for the colony of Victoria to sort out with their citizens. But individual Americans may not have been quite so firm about that. The same evening, on the grounds at the diggings, those individual American miners were having their own more rowdy celebrations. Many of these diggers were in fact quite happy to stand by their British brothers, even to encourage them in considering shaking off the yoke of colonial rule in favour of republicanism. So when the troop reinforcements from the 40th Regiment arrived from Melbourne and marched provocatively right through the Eureka lead to the government camp, with their swords brandished and bayonets fixed, this inflammatory action drew a defiant response from the miners in the area, as we mentioned in the last episode. Jeers and token throwing of objects escalated, resulting in shots being exchanged, and at least three people were injured that night, and this would set the tone for the interaction between the miners and the military in the coming days. Perhaps one of the failings leading to poor relations between the authorities and the miners was related to the historical class structures. Several sources note that many goldfield officials and military leaders were men with class connections in England, though probably with little actual colonial experience. Quote, unfledged aristocrats, useless at home, unquote, as Humphrey described them. Johnston, the assistant gold commissioner, who had ignored the appalling violence of his police officers, particularly the beating and trampling of Gregorius, that you might recall from the last episodes, and who had happily ramped up these confrontations at the now twice weekly digger hunts, where diggers found without a licence might be assaulted and have their tent and belongings burnt before being arrested and hauled up to the government camp, was just one of these B-grade aristocratic types, one assumes. Historian Hunt describes Johnston as the dick dastardly of Ballarat. (laughs) Hard to argue with that. He also told us that this Johnston was the nephew of one George Johnston, the very Johnston who put down Australia's first rebellion at Castle Hill in 1804, and then he actually led his own rum rebellion against Governor Bly in 1808. And that last one, at least, was particularly dodgy, being a land-loving mutiny. I'm not sure that's acceptable behaviour for the aristocracy, except, hmm, wait a minute... British history, kingmakers, kings overthrown. Hmm, maybe it's pretty ordinary after all. (laughs) However, Hunt is right. Quote, if you wanted to stage a rebellion in Australia, then you needed to invite a Johnston, unquote. (laughs) David Hunt's take on our history is just so good. This is from his second volume, True Gert, The Unauthorised History of Australia. Publishing details will be in the reference list on the webpage, of course, and it's such a funny and informative read, it's highly recommended. In burning their licences, the men were asserting their intention to be free of the tyranny imposed. It was symbolic in objecting to the unreasonable cost and conditions that came with the licence, the corrupt infrastructure supporting it, and the fact that it provided no services or representation in return for its fee. But it also meant that the diggers must now look to different solutions. No longer being part of the commissioner's arrangements, the diggers would henceforth need to rely on themselves to manage any future disputes in the goldfields, creating an element of self-government in their community. And again, this could be interpreted as rejecting the current rule of law. Certainly when Lawler and the sworn diggers marched to the Eureka lead with their provocative new flag, flying where a Union Jack should be for all good Englishmen, outrageous. 
It just reinforced the government's worry about revolution. The diggers seemed now bent on acts of sedition, even treason. And though it may have been in the authorities' power to negotiate these men back to a position of loyalty, when Hotham was presented with the charter on the 27th of November, he simply made a note on the document saying, Put away! He had no intention of considering the requests from those who would question the Queen's prerogative in the colony, and therefore his powers to act as he saw fit. But many historians noted, while some in the colony welcomed the levelling tendencies of the gold rush, others lamented the loss of the stable, dare I say paternal, hierarchy. And we are about to see those two extremes clashing in Ballarat. Some of the more radical voices were those published in the Ballarat Times, edited by Henry Seacamp and Clara Duval, a paper that historian and author David Hunt called, quote, unabashedly pro-minor and anti-government, unquote. In one editorial, Seacamp wrote, quote, This league is nothing more or less than the germ of Australian independence. The die is cast, fate has stamped upon the movement its indelible signature, no power on earth can now restrain the united might and headlong strides for freedom of the people of this country. We salute the League and tender our hopes and prayers for its prosperity. Unquote. Well, with heady words like these, we can see how the Ballarat Times could be quite the irritant for the authorities. So by now, the government camp was quite nervous, fearing the miners might actually be coming for them and so they further reinforced their camp area and placed men-at-arms night and day to keep watch. Remember that extra police had been sent earlier. 28 mounted troops from the 40th Regiment had arrived on the 24th of November, and four days later, more men arrived from the 40th and also troops from the 12th. These were the reinforcements that had come marching through the Eureka area on the evening of the 28th, their presence there riling the diggers, resulting in shots being fired, and a drummer boy and two others being injured. Soon, there were more than 260 members of the military crammed into the camp alongside the police and officials, totalling nearly 550 housed there by the end of November. It's suggested that the hot-headedness that night of the 28th, when the military marched through the Eureka, was triggered by the American diggers, who'd been celebrating Thanksgiving, as I mentioned before, and their high spirits goading their fellow diggers and reminding them that fighting for a republic was not such a bad thing. The Americans, generally more well-armed than the others, were likely to have fired the first shots that night, injuring three from the military party, and so they may have contributed quite significantly to the developments from that point. For years it was claimed that the drummer boy, John Egan, had died from those shots, being claimed as the first casualty of the rebellion. But Maloney notes, despite the authorities erecting a monument in his memory later, no death certificate or grave was evident. The contemporary rumour being strong, though, he thought this belief amongst the troops and police might have accounted for some of the barbarity that would occur on December 3rd. It's shocking to hear fake news and propaganda being used as a weapon so early on, isn't it? But there you have it. In the following years, evidence showed that Egan must have recovered, as he was still listed as part of the regiment in 1861. So we left the last episode as the Volatile Ballarat Reform League meeting on Bakery Hill concluded. The more radical elements in the crowd were calling for violent, or at least physical, resistance to the status quo. And the Irish Catholic Peter Lawler had emerged as the leader of these men now, with Humphrey and the other cool heads forced into the background by their insistence on peaceful means. 
Lawler had invigorated and inspired the men with his talk of liberty and of active resistance and marched them off down the hill to the Eureka lead. But he was a latecomer to the meetings, not part of the original league formation, and not everyone knew him or trusted his credentials, being concerned perhaps that he was leaning a little too far towards the old Irish home rule dispute with the British. He later wrote, quote, I expected someone who is really well known to come forward and direct our movement, unquote. When no one else did come forward, he pledged he would lead them, but Hunt wrote, quote, warning bells should have started to ring for his followers, unquote. and Hunt was right. Peter Lawler was the son of Patrick Lawler, an Irish MP and Home Rule campaigner of rights for the Irish peasantry. And he was brother to James Finton Lawler, a leader in the Young Ireland movement, who was jailed for his involvement and indeed leadership of the violent uprising related to that movement back in his home country. Lawler's Australian Dictionary of Biography entry says, quote, The family was descended from the O'Lawlers, one of the seven septs of Leeks, who had fought against the English invasion of Ireland in the 16th century, unquote. So he's got a long history of wanting to shake off the tyrannous yoke of the English. <laughs> Peter, though, had largely kept his nose out of any Republican politics in Ireland. His biographer noting, quote, His early years were overshadowed by the family's dramatic events and by the famine, but no evidence shows that he was actively involved, unquote. He was himself supposed to have said that he had, quote, no inclination to mix himself up with them, unquote. But with a father as an MP, he would not have been your typical poor bog Irish refugee to the colonies either. Peter and a brother arrived in Melbourne during October 1852 and immediately found work and got themselves into some local business ventures. In 1853, he tried his luck in the Ovens goldfields in the northeast of Victoria, moving to Ballarat early in 1854. So he had been less than one year living under the conditions at Ballarat and experiencing fair luck on his mining returns. Despite seeing what was going on and considering his family background, he really managed to keep his head down for a good long while. But after witnessing the injustices associated with Scobie's death and when the mood of the monster meeting changed, he seems to have been seized by the dormant family activism. The cork had popped and he jumped into his role with the fervour of one who's seen the light gathering then an enthusiastic, quote, cadre of would-be revolutionaries around him, unquote. Having taken their flag down the hill to the Eureka diggings, where Lawler had his claim, Lawler, Carboni, Hayes, Verne and many other prominent men met in Diamond's large tent, where Lawler made a few declarations, including that these men were to be the council of war for their defence and that they should form up and practice drills to better defend unlicensed diggers. Remembering perhaps the effectiveness of the Parisian barricades, they began constructing a surrounding barrier against the troops, or as we know it today, a stockade, and they considered how to gather arms that might be used to defend themselves. The lack of arms would be a major problem when facing the professional militia and troopers. So they began constructing the stockade from anything they could find. I say stockade, but it was a very crude construction, not really up to the task they set it. In some places, logs were driven into the ground, but in others, they simply dragged fallen trees along the line or overturned carts into place. Sections were held together with ropes, and in some places, it was no more than three feet, that's one metre, high. 
The stockade enclosed an area of about one acre, that's about one quarter of a hectare, though actually the perimeter was never entirely closed. And not all those within the newly built stockade had willingly joined the cause. Some had simply had their dwelling, store or pit surrounded, being already in the place chosen by Lawler. The stockade enclosure was full of shallow holes, shallow mine pit diggings, and these were expected to be useful. Carboni described this common element on the diggings, reminding us that those not working their claims could lose the rights to them. Quote, Miners in partnership might have adjacent claims, and while working one would reserve the others by sinking shallow holes in them. This practice led to much trouble, and not seldom to violence. Within the Eureka stockade, most of the holes were these shepherders, and being shallow, were serviceable as rifle pits, unquote. The developing barricade was described by Carboni as higgledy-piggledy. Hunt, on the other hand, went a little further. Quote, the Eureka stockade, like Ballarat's Irish shacks, were remarkable for its defiance of symmetry. The traditional circular defensive structure issued for a drunken parallelogram of planks, barrels, carts and bits of rope straight from the set of a school production of Les Mis. <laughs> the stockade, only three foot high in some parts, may have held off a leprechaun attack, but it was good for bugger all else, unquote. <laughs> so, at its best, surely everyone knew it was largely symbolic, and yet, despite the shambolic defences and theatre-prop weapons, still the men held to their oath, even in the face of what might have been the most poignant omen of all. Lawler choosing the password for entry as Vinegar Hill. Vinegar Hill must surely have been the byword for abject failure, the original Battle of Vinegar Hill being a fight that resulted in annihilation for the Irish and which marked the end of the Irish Rebellion in Ireland in 1798. Then, once again in Australia in 1804, there was that Castle Hill uprising that I mentioned earlier that Uncle George Johnston had dealt with. 300 predominantly Irish convicts had used the Vinegar Hill rally cry to begin their little rebellion, only to be soundly crushed by the colonial forces. Nine of the rebel leaders were executed and the others were well punished. Vinegar Hill did not have the ring of good luck or success associated with it for rebels. But then, maybe they'd already read the tea leaves. Plus, in using that term, it led some men to feel there was an overtly Irish flavour being woven into their homegrown Australian Goldfields Rebellion, and it did put a number of people offside. As I mentioned before, it seemed many were unhappy about having to take issue with Queen and Country, and they only did so because they felt no other option given the corruption amongst the authorities in Ballarat and the refusal of the Governor and the current Parliament to investigate what they thought to be reasonable grievances. Still, Lawler was simply returning to what he knew, perhaps, the rebel catchphrases of his family. As I mentioned last episode, Lawler had earlier recruited Raffaello Carboni to assist, saying, quote, I want you, Signore, tell these gentlemen, pointing to our acquaintances who were foreigners, that, if they cannot provide themselves with firearms, let each of them procure a piece of steel, five or six inches long, attached to a pole, and that will pierce the tyrant's heart, unquote. Lawler was encouraging the men here to make an old-fashioned weapon known as a pike for their weapon of offence and defence. Let's return to Hunt's frank take on the matter. Here, the warning bell should have increased in volume. Quote, the pike, 
essentially a long pointy metal stick, was the Irish revolutionary's weapon of choice, despite everyone else having switched to guns and cannons centuries earlier. (laughs) Irish Republicans loved charging British musket lines with their trusty pikes, although not for long. The pike was an enduring symbol of Irish heroic failure, unquote. Oh dear. And look, I just have to read you Hunt's footnote from that page. It's just too good to leave out. You really have to find yourself a copy. Quote, The Battle of the Eureka Stockade was one of the world's last epic pike fails. However, it was the English rather than the Irish who were responsible for history's last pike disaster. In 1941, Prime Minister Winston Churchill was concerned that many of Britain's World War II home guard were unarmed. He sent a memo to the war office, replete with his usual dry wit, that every man must have a weapon of some sort, be it only a mace or a pike. The war office took him at his word, and they manufactured a quarter of a million pikes to defend Britain's beaches against the Nazis' new light machine guns. Lord Croft, the Under-Secretary of State for War, defended the pike as a most effective and silent weapon, earning him a lifetime of ridicule. Except in Ireland. <laughs> Unquote. <laughs> I wonder if Lord Croft's first name wasn't Paddy. <laughs> That's a gem of an anecdote to have added to the story, David Hunt. Bravo. <laughs> but he noted others stepping up to help Lawler included James McGill, who, quote, took charge of 200 of his fellow Americans, called themselves the Independent California Rangers, brandished revolvers and Mexican knives, and said, yee-haw, a lot. <laughs> Unquote. Well, the revolvers were certainly a step up from the pikes, if you're staring down troopers with rifles. Another leader was Timothy Hayes, who had previously been elected as a chairman of the Ballarat Reform League. Also Irish, he and his wife Anastasia and their then five children had arrived in 1852 and soon moved on to the Eureka diggings. Tall and popular, he was often at the centre of various committees on the goldfields, and Anastasia was highly active and supportive of the community too, teaching the local children at the Catholic Church there. German Frederick Verne, proposing one of the resolutions in the Charter, was later appointed second in command at the stockade, promising to bring 500 German diggers to assist, though Carboni claimed that no German brigade did ever arrive. Canadian Charles Ross, better known as Captain Ross, was also instrumental in the formation of the Ballarat Reform League and later became associated with the flag, possibly designing and commissioning it, but certainly taking charge of it at the meetings and in the stockade. Raffaello Carboni, as I may have mentioned in the previous episode, was an interesting character. From Abino, Italy, he had quite a political and even revolutionary background before arriving on the goldfields. He was active in the Young Italy movement, fighting to unify Italy against Austrian rule, and he was wounded in 1849 there, before leaving the country to travel through Western Europe and finally heading to Melbourne in 1852 to try his luck in the goldfields. Described as, quote, an articulate European with revolutionary experience, unquote, he became a leading figure in the Eureka developments, and he went on to publish a full-length eyewitness account to the lead-up, revolt, and aftermath of Eureka, which was published the year following, and was in print a long time and is still today available in many library collections. 
While he had witnessed and spoken at various Goldfield meetings, he had only joined the Ballarat Reform League in the days immediately before the uprising. He had earlier been active, along with Father Smythe, Humphrey and others, in meeting with various authorities and pleading the diggers' case, including a crucial meeting with the Commissioner, trying to calm the situation and avoid the bloodshed that looked to be coming. Sadly, they were unable to persuade the Commissioner to modify his intended actions, and so he found himself working with other foreigners and liaising with Lawler as they began preparing the stockade. In Thomas Keneally's introduction to the 1993 edition of Carboni's memoir that I looked at, he suggested, quote, Raffaello felt no overriding duty to produce an Australian democratic republic. What focused Carboni's passion for the cause were the savage and relentless license hunts, and the fact that he hadn't travelled such a huge distance to suffer the sort of punishment he could have had at the hands of the Austrians saying, I came then 16,000 miles in vain to get away from the law of the sword, unquote. While there were some calls to take their fight immediately to the camp, the plan was to continue gathering weapons and sharpen their skills for any confrontation to come, a confrontation that might pit them against the formidable force of the British army. So they gathered their supplies and weapons and drilled and readied for action should it come to them, but no blue or red coats came their way on Friday the 1st, and by the afternoon, a large contingent of diggers from the Kresic diggings had come to join the stockade. Sadly, this group had been told that they would be supplied with weapons and provisions on their arrival at Ballarat. Local storekeepers did come through with some food, but it seemed a number of the new arrivals had been availing themselves of the sly grog purveyors on the way anyway, and were not in the best shape to assist. Many settled in around the fire in the centre of the stockade and others were billeted in the tents of sympathisers outside. This blunder, as Carboni called it, was to further add to the general disarray there and not many of them stayed on after that first night anyway. Some men had been deputised with orders of war by Lawler to commandeer weapons and ammunition from all available sources on the goldfield keeping a note of what was taken from and owed to whom, so that those giving up their goods and weapons could be compensated appropriately when the crisis was over. But of course there were some who would have acted for themselves and taken the opportunity to simply relieve people of their belongings, using the crisis as their excuse. So it was all getting pretty lawless and desperate. Though the government now seemed set on its trajectory of action, the miners continued to try and negotiate with the camp authorities. A deputation was sent up to the camp to demand the release of the men who'd been arrested in the most recent licence hunt and also request that Commissioner Reid pledge to cease any further hunts until the group had the opportunity to put their case one more time to Hotham. Again, though, the language used raised hackles. Demand. Reid would not agree. Had the Commissioner acquiesced to those demands, even for a few days to cool tempers, the mood would likely have shifted substantially. Probably the vast majority of diggers would very likely have backed down and returned to their work if he had only acted on halting the digger hunts and licence policing while the government looked into it further. But there was an element in the camp at least that would welcome a violent confrontation, perhaps even welcome the chance to take revenge for the ceaseless Joe, Joe calling. <laughs> the camp itself was already in a frenzy, in Carboni's words, now choked with redcoats and they had barricaded and reinforced the camp in the expectation of an attack from the rowdy miners from the stockade. 
no amount of negotiation would see the Commissioner back down now. By now, the stockade was in place, and men had brought in their weapons such as they had, including the pikes, and some military-style drills were taking place. On Saturday, December 2nd, the number inside the stockade reached 800, according to Carboni, though some sources claim there was as many as 1,500 inside, ready to act should there be any repeat of the recent digger hunt. But as they'd got later in the day, and all the more unlikely that any hunt would take place now, many began drifting away from the stockade, back to their own tents and dwellings, preparing for a quiet Sunday in the morning, attending church, and attending to their families should they have them on the goldfield. Though they were all reminded to attend the planned meeting that next day on Sunday 3rd of December at the Adelphi Theatre. Like the three arrested over the hotel fire, those men arrested during the last provocative digger hunt were considered political prisoners by the authorities, now concerned that the ongoing resistance and the stockade indicated sedition, which Reed said, quote, must be put down by force. Before many days have passed, it will be necessary for us to sweep the whole goldfield, unquote. Despite being somewhat concerned about the diggers bringing the fight to them at the camp, they probably felt pretty confident in being able to subdue an uprising if the troopers could use the weapons at their disposal. Spies may have even let it be known the woeful state of weaponry available to the diggers. While there were many with guns of some sort on the gold fields, these were not all in the hands of those in the stockade. Theatre owner Sarah Hanmer did her bit, though we might ask now for which side by supplying some theatre prop weapons, fake guns and sabres and the like. That the idea was even entertained probably indicates the actual state of the rebels' preparedness. Again, why were the alarm bells not ringing off the wall? Looking back from here, it all seems absurd. The only real thing of relevance was their resolve, their emotional commitment, and yet surely they saw how ridiculous it was to expect to match the camp militia this way. Physically, practically and militarily, it seemed to me a tragic farce unfolding. And a tragedy it would be. So, a few men with guns and revolvers, Lawler's pikes, which the blacksmith was pumping out on sight, and the theatre prop weapons. Luckily, the well-armed Americans were on board and ready to put their weapons to use in the struggle, but as we will see, perhaps their eagerness simply fueled the fatalities that would come, rather than allowing a peaceful surrender, which really was all that was open to the men in the stockade when the crunch came. The situation was dire, but they had no inkling of how dire, as they settled in on Saturday night. Reed remained concerned about the possibility of an attack on the government camp. If it occurred, it was imperative that they were triumphant. Quote, to lose the camp would be to lose the colony, unquote, and he wasn't going to risk that. To subdue the diggings and make movement and collusion more difficult, Reed ordered that, quote, no lights will be allowed to be kept burning in any tent within musket shot of the line of sentries after 8 o'clock p.m. No discharge of firearms in the neighbourhood of the camp will be permitted. The sentries have orders to fire upon any person offending against these rules by order, etc., etc., etc. And with the theatre closed early to comply with Reed's order, and otherwise little activity occurring after dark, many diggers turned in early on Saturday night. 
Carboni himself had returned to his own tent just a little outside of the stockade, and he recorded by Saturday evening the quote, rebels were ready to retire and prepare for the Sabbath, a day when the families came to the fore on the goldfields and when a good many still undertook their religious observances. And so many who had been spending the last few days at the stockade wandered out across the fields to their own tents and huts. Unquote. Approximately 150 diggers were estimated to have been inside the stockade as midnight ticked over into Sunday the 3rd of December. However, the military at the camp were determined to shut down this rebellion before it could gather any more momentum. Meeting their foe at the stockade rather than waiting for an attack at the camp seemed to be the best option, and their spies had brought them intelligence about the state of readiness and defensive fortifications on the Eureka and they were likely to have been aware of the depleted numbers within, too. Though, Pobji suggests they were also likely to be, quote, enraged by reports that Americans were making fun of Australia for having hardly any proper violence in its history. <laughs> Unquote. Yeah, the military certainly don't take kindly to taunting, but that state of affairs was about to change. The element of surprise was decreed the best tactic, and so at 3am on Sunday morning, Leaving the majority of troops in reserve to guard the camp, Captain John Thomas quietly set off with his 280 or so troops and police down the hill to storm the Eureka stockade while most inside were asleep. Just what that sudden attack looked and sounded like we can only speculate. But in the moonlight, Captain Thomas had placed his mounted police and soldiers to best advantage around the stockade, moving to within 150 metres, that's about 150 yards, of the stockade, before those inside appear to have seen them. And then a single shot, believed to have come from inside, set the battle to action. Thomas yelled, The Queen's troops have been fired upon! Fire! And as old Russ once said, they were to unleash hell. Afterwards, the bugler sounded the skirmish call, which meant that Thomas's men could break ranks and attack at will. Wright notes in her book that military historian Gregory Blake has written a book which, quote, offers a forensic dissection, unquote, of the stockade battle. I have not had access to that book myself in time for this episode, but I will include the bibliographic details of both editions in the reference list in case anyone would care to chase it up. Robert Burnett from James McGill's Independent California Rangers is credited by some with firing that first shot, though Hawking notes there were otherwise not many of the 200 Rangers actually involved in the battle when the time came, perhaps only 20 or so. But both sides would have been keen to credit the other with being the aggressor. Thomas later reported to Hotham that having detected, quote, rather sharp and well-directed fire from the insurgents, then... And not until then, I ordered commence firing, unquote. Other sources suggested that the first shot might have been a warning shot fired by Harry de Longville, a sentry on the stockade, intended to wake up the men. Either way, the sound of gunshot had given Thomas his excuse to have his men begin firing. Lawler's men roused themselves, but not many were in place for any coordinated response, and several in the line of fire were hit early on. One of the men later recounted, quote, When the alarm was first sounded, Lawler made strenuous efforts to organise an effective line of defence, but it was labour in vain. Many of the miners had freely indulged in strong drink the previous night, and when they were hurriedly turned out at daylight, in a semi-stupid condition, they failed to comprehend the orders that were issued, 
and utter confusion ensued on every side. Unquote. Carboni, asleep in his own tent outside the enclosure, ran down to see what was happening over at the stockade, and then returned to take refuge in his chimney while the battle raged. Several stockade men fell from shot, sabre cuts, and bayonets, and died there at the Eureka. Others were injured and made their way or were helped into hiding. Some, like Verne and McGill, took their opportunity to escape the area altogether. Valiant Captain Ross stayed at his post beneath the flag until he was felled by shot. Lawler remained at arms facing the troops until he was shot in the left shoulder and dropped his pistol. When it became clear they were being completely overrun, he finally yelled, Get away, boys, as quickly as you can, the stockade is taken, before falling to the ground, suffering weakness from blood loss. His comrades carried him outside of the stockade and hid him in a shallow pit covered with timber. In general, the stunned and unprepared rebels were completely outgunned, and they surrendered in less than 20 minutes. The devastating thing was, though, that the troopers continued pursuing people, even after the surrender, ignoring Thomas's order to stand down. The usual rules of war were not adhered to in the stockade or the surrounds. I can't help thinking about the sentiment expressed by Hotham to the authorities there earlier, which surely had some bearing on their behaviour and lack of restraint, too. If you recall from an earlier episode, he had authorised the commanders there to, quote, use force whenever legally called upon to do so, without regard to the consequences which might ensue, unquote. I think this might imply cover to all those who would act murderously, while others suggested that the rumour that the young drummer boy having been killed in the days prior may have encouraged their appalling and vengeful behaviour too. Shooting continued as the rebels and civilians retreated, and when firing ceased, some fallen and injured diggers were then bayoneted as the troops moved into the stockade. A storekeeper within was hit in the back and killed as he tried to make his way out of the conflict. When troopers reached him, they set fire to his tent and they stabbed his body again with their bayonets in front of his distraught wife for good measure. One witness recorded seeing a woman, quote, mercilessly butchered by a mounted trooper while pleading for the life of her husband, unquote. Remember, there were civilians caught up in this because Lawler had simply brought the enthusiastic diggers down to the Eureka lead and enclosed an area there inside the constructed stockade. Some people, like the murdered storekeeper, might have been completely uninvolved, just happened to have their claim there, and had no say on where the men erected the stockade. So there were many witnesses to the soldiers and troopers bayoneting, slashing with swords, and otherwise killing those they found wounded on the ground or hiding. Wright records contemporary observers calling it a massacre, not a battle. And this behaviour carried over to the outside of the stockade in the surrounding area. The savagery inside and out was appalling and really shocking. We don't expect those who swear to serve us to turn on us like that. It was said that the most damage was done by the bayonet and not bullet, so that indicates close quarters and probably surrendered people. Wright quotes Anne Diamond telling of her husband's death and wounds. Quote, it was a trooper that did it. I know that my husband got three hurts from a sword in the back. He fell on his face and he got three cuts of a sword and a stab of a bayonet, unquote. So that certainly seems excessive and indeed murderous treatment of a fleeing man. Hocking records another witness seeing one man murdered well outside the compound. 
The man had run down the hill to watch the action on the Eureka lead. When two troopers noticed him on the rise and called him to stand, he became frightened and he ran. Following him, they caught up and called on him to surrender to them. No, he replied, I'm going home. I had nothing to do with the fight. I've just come from my work. When he refused a second time to surrender to the troopers, one of them dismounted and shot him fair in the chest before remounting and riding away. The witness then went to help, but the man was already quite dead, and searching his pockets, he found he had a current paid-up license on his person, so he was certainly not one of the license-burning rebels of the Eureka. Not that that lack of license should have warranted any such murderous attention anyway. Others witnessed similar actions where troopers called men out from the tents on the surrounding goldfields, and should they offer any resistance, they were shot or assaulted otherwise and had their tents burnt, with no care or interest if there were other persons inside. Others were chased down and trampled with horses, or run through with sabres. It really was appalling, savage and completely barbaric, lawless behaviour being witnessed and that they were so undisciplined and felt so immune to the normal rules of human behaviour perhaps gives some insight into their barely restrained hatred and contempt of the civilians on the goldfield. Tents were recklessly run through with sword and bayonet, and Wright says orders were then given to set alight to all the tents in the stockade and vicinity, using a pot of burning tar to ignite them. They did not check first to see if any injured or civilians were hiding in them. At least two men were found to have burnt to death in their tents, and John Sheehan's wife and children were burnt alive there also, though their tent was outside of the stockade, and the family had no association with the rebels at all. These female and child casualties were not even formally counted in the battle casualties. Early memorials often failed to acknowledge their loss at all. Many others had escaped their tents and survived, but lost their home and all their belongings in these punitive fires. It was said that Vern and McGill both fled dressed as women. It's a good disguise if you need to get away, and we spoke about this possibility in the Kelly episodes. In describing the escaping men wearing dresses, there is often some overtone of cowardice being inferred, a shame to be implied, when men are accused of dressing as women so I don't know how true this might be, or what element might simply be propaganda intended to discredit the men. For mine, I think it indicates only quick thinking, and a plan which might give them a better chance of survival. No shame in that, I think, though some do imply that Vern, at least, despite his eagerness and bravado, did not even stay to face the troopers once the attack began, instead running at the first opportunity. Anyway, equating the wearing of dresses with cowardice is extremely offensive. Some of the dress-wearing women at the scene were brave in the extreme, and that should be acknowledged. Those protecting and covering their children under a hail of shot, and those protecting the injured, or assisting marked men to escape the bayonets of the soldiers. One woman fell across an injured man and wailed, He's dead! He's dead! in order to dissuade a trooper from running him through though not all troopers refrained from attacking the women, so it was a risk. Wright reported another who stood her ground, covering a cowering man with her hoop skirts to hide him. <laughs> One woman, on hearing the cries of a wounded man nearby, left her tent to try and help him, only to be fired upon herself and forced back. So the chivalry of its age is not evident there. 
For all this, there were witnesses who reported seeing some of the troopers helping people escape from burning tents, so this unfolding massacre must have been just as much a shock to those decent men as it was to the people on the goldfield. Some attempted to rein in their comrades' excesses. The odd commanding officer demanded chivalry when some atrocity was about to occur. But there was not enough oversight and control of the troops, and not enough senior officers with a desire to see the conflict undertaken in a civilised way to bring the murderers to heel. No further killing should have occurred after surrender. This behaviour would become one of the elements that was to shock and appall the public, and lead to many recriminations in the weeks and months to come. This is also what makes this incident so searing as a historical tragedy for us. A massacre, not a battle. Peter Lawler had been shot in the left shoulder and was seriously injured. He lay hidden under the timber where his colleagues had placed him until the troopers had cleared the area and they could get him out safely and get him to medical help. Smythe and others managed to smuggle him to the presbytery, by which time he'd lost a lot of blood. He was to have his injured arm amputated the following evening, and he was soon spirited away to Geelong. Now, in a parochial taunt to Victoria's second city, Pobji notes, that would have been, quote, a double blow to his dignity. <laughs> but there, in the beautiful port town of Geelong, he was hidden and cared for by his fiancée, Alicia Dunn. Hunt reminds us, though, that Lawler must have had, quote, more left arms than a Hindu god, with several doctors later claiming credit for the amputation, unquote. George Black, a leader and the editor of The Digger's Advocate, was probably not on site at the time, but he was marked as a wanted man afterwards. Captain Ross was said to have fallen, defending the flag. Being shot in the groin, he escaped the scene and was hidden in a tent elsewhere, but he died later that day from those wounds. Carboni was not in the stockade at the time of the attack, but was arrested anyway later in the morning, while tending to the wounds of injured men. Timothy Hayes was also absent from the stockade that night, but was likewise arrested and later removed to Melbourne. Anastasia Hayes also went to the stockade to help the injured, writing later, quote, I saw many of the wounded, and I did all that lay in my power to alleviate their sufferings. The sight was one that touched me very much, and I shall never forget it. Many of the poor fellows were besmirched with blood and writhing in agony from some wound, unquote. Anne Duke was in a tent within the stockade when it was stormed, and she and her brother were said to have helped conceal Lawler after he was injured, so he would not be taken in the round-up of prisoners. During the shooting, she and Mrs. Parger had hidden together behind the logs near their tent, but Parger was lucky to have survived. Her clothing later showed to be riddled with shot. Poor Mary Falls, though, was actually in labour with her first child as the military arrived, and this is not something that one can stop to make a quick getaway. How horrifying. When the fighting ceased, policeman John King had climbed the flagpole and torn down the Southern Cross, so offensive to the authorities. Egged on by cheers from the camp troops, the flag was thrown to the ground, trampled and pierced with bayonets to reinforce their contempt and disrespect. King then gathered up the flag and took it with them as they left the stockade. The whole route had taken only 15 minutes or so from the first shot. As well as those who had fallen, many prisoners were rounded up, including a number with serious injuries and taken to the camp to be held. 127 prisoners were placed under guard that day. 
Hawking records the casualties at the stockade as 15 rebels dead at the scene, nine more died later from wounds received. But of course others were not necessarily counted, such as the burnt women and children, or those who may have been spirited out by comrades or family, and who may have died later after leaving the compound. And I guess it's worth saying, not everyone in the stockade was a rebel. Of the government forces, one soldier was killed there, and another four died from injuries sustained in the days and weeks that followed. And of course, for both groups, numerous others were left injured. I'll place an image of Hocking's list with the references on the website. Such a waste of life, for want of a little humility and compromise. The dead at the stockade were later gathered and loaded on carts and removed to the camp. There is a story of a pikeman who was killed there and whose small dog sat on his chest howling. When the men came to remove his body to the cart, the dog refused to leave and he jumped onto the cart with his master. Finally, they had to tie him up in the stockade before they could remove his master's body. The statue of the pikeman's dog stands with other commemorative artworks in the present-day Eureka Museum Gardens at Ballarat. As I suggested a moment ago, some fallen were able to be secretly removed by friends and mourned and buried away from the gaze of the authorities, so we really have no definitive idea of the real number of lives lost, either rebels prepared for a fight inside the stockade, innocent persons caught up in the wrong place, women and children at the mercy of the decisions of their men made, or even those pursued outside of the stockade, willfully injured and murdered by troopers. The so-called rebellion was a farce from start to finish, albeit a tragic and sorry one. Wright describes it simply as a shambles, and that seems about right. Commissioner Reed issued the following statement from the government camp that afternoon, quote, Her Majesty's forces were this morning fired upon by a large body of evil-disposed persons of various nations, who had entrenched themselves in the stockade in Eureka, and some officers and men were killed. Several of the rioters have paid the penalty for their crime, and a large number are in custody. All well-disposed persons are requested to return to their ordinary occupations and to abstain from assembling in large groups, and every protection will be afforded to them by the authorities. God save the Queen! Unquote. The dead from the stockade were buried on the 4th. That evening, soldiers fired into several tents where lights were burning past 8pm against the rules of the curfew and three more lives were lost. I don't know why one couldn't fire a warning shot in those circumstances, but it seems that bloodlust had not yet subsided. On the 5th, Major General Robert Nicholl arrived in Ballarat to take charge with 800 men, two field guns and two howitzers. Martial law was formally declared for a 10-mile or 16-kilometre radius around Ballarat. The government was going to put a lid on this rebellious behaviour once and for all. As the witness reports became known, the people of Victoria were appalled, but in the first instance they were alarmed at the uprising itself, the age reporting, quote, actual rebellion, with all its bloodiest consequences, is before our eyes. It is Victoria's hour of trial. It will require the wisdom, the energy, the cooperation of all her best citizens to bear her safely through it, unquote. So we'll finish this episode here today, with the camp authorities closing the goldfield, enforcing order with martial law, and quashing all further resistance to order. 
A number of the stockade protagonists, including Peter Lawler, had slipped through their grasp and would soon become wanted men. Of the others taken into custody, several were identified as rebel leaders or other problematic persons, and they would be charged and sent for trial in Melbourne. Hotham was keen to make an example of these men, and the full force of the law would be applied. Next month, we'll look at the general public's responses to the Eureka Rebellion, the actions of other diggers, Hotham's response, and that of the British government. We'll review the charges brought against the Eureka leaders, the trial outcomes, and then we'll consider what influence all of this may have had on future arrangements in the governance of Victoria. I want to mention a couple of things about that brilliant Eureka flag too, so please join me then to wrap up the story of the Eureka Rebellion. If you have been enjoying this series, I'm going to ask you to help assist me in building our listening community by leaving me a lovely five-star review on the podcasting platform that you use to listen, like Spotify or iTunes or Podbean, and by telling a couple of your friends how to find the Australian Histories podcast to see if they would like to subscribe and listen too. That would be so helpful. Recommendations are very valuable in the podcasting community. These numbers, the reviews and people clicking on and subscribing, are what boosts the show to become more visible on these platforms. If you're loving it, maybe others will too. I recently did a small poll on my Twitter feed to see if anyone was enjoying the recommendations for the other podcasts that I put into most of my episodes now, and 88% of respondents said they often try them. 13% said they occasionally try them. Now, while that already adds up to 101 somehow, I can confirm that 0% said, nope, not interested. So it looks like recommendations I give you are often of interest to you. So let's go with another one today. I fairly recently discovered a long-running program called The Explorers Podcast. In this American production, historian Matt Breen focuses on telling the stories of great explorers in history, looking at the lives and accomplishments of some of the most extraordinary people to traverse our world. I most recently listened to the series on the Lost Franklin Expedition. Franklin was sent in search of the Northwest Passage, never to return, though his wife lobbied and funded rescue efforts for many years afterwards. Franklin, you may recall, from the Cascades episodes, was for a time before this the governor of Van Diemen's Land. Lady Jane Franklin was quite an interesting figure in Tasmanian history and probably deserves an episode all of her own one day. In the Mawson series, I also briefly mentioned the Greeley expedition, which was a sensational story of its day, ending badly for almost everyone involved. But they had been charged with searching for the missing Franklin vessels in the north, so it was great to hear about what is known about Franklin and his expedition. Okay, it's been quite a long episode, so I'll just remind you that I'll put a link to the Explorers podcast on my webpage at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au along with the references and images for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks again if you're able to help promote the show. With luck, I'll have the next ready for the last Friday of next month, wrapping up the Eureka story. So have a safe and happy few weeks. Talk then. Cheers. Cheers.